The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. How are we? I am Dave. I'm the high school pastor here. And uh, you guys look a little bit tired this morning. I'm not sure why that is, but I know we're all feeling that today. Um, so today we are continuing in our series in Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, Chase gave me permission to tell you this story. Uh, but last week, uh, when Chase was given the opening message in Nehemiah, I'm at the back of the room here and following along. And he starts preaching all of chapter two. And I thought, wait a second, he's preaching my passage. And so I go home and look at the schedule and checked it. And he was supposed to stop at verse eight, but then he went all the way through chapter two. And so I texted him that night. And of course, he is like really sorry. He's apologizing profusely. And uh, we decided I could either reteach the second half of chapter two or just start chapter three. And then I went and read chapter three. And I said, I think I'll teach chapter two. And so chapter three is a list of names and gates. And so he'll teach three and four next week. Um, So a quick recap where we are in the story. Uh, Ezra's focus, Ezra's focus was on rebuilding the temple, but Nehemiah's focus was on the city walls of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, 445 BC, 13 years after Ezra. And now Ezra, of course, was a priest and a teacher, but Nehemiah has a very different occupation. He is the cupbearer to the king, which is kind of like being in the secret service. Your job is to drink anything before the king that, that if someone's trying to poison him, you're trying to drink that. And uh, so really you have one job as cupbearer, and it's don't die. That's your job. Um, in life. And this is what his job was, Nehemiah's job. He was cupbearer to the king. And then later, of course, he becomes governor of Jerusalem. And we can learn a lot about leadership in the book of Nehemiah as we see his example. And uh, so Nehemiah, he hears about Israel's destruction. He feels burdened for the Jewish people and for Jerusalem. And he asks the king, King Artaxerxes, can I go back and rebuild? And of course, the king grants him that wish. And we pick up in Nehemiah chapter 2, Verse 9, where it says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, but his journey is a little bit different than Ezra's. Ezra didn't have this armed entourage. But Nehemiah does because he's the cupbearer to the king, so he's got access to those kinds of resources. But also, if someone is trying to bring harm to the king, they might try to do it to Nehemiah first. So he has this armed entourage going with him over to Jerusalem because he has this connection to the king. He's the cupbearer. And this entourage comes into Jerusalem, and for the governors of that region, you could see how this would be a threat to them. This would be a political threat to them. So this is why he needed these letters from the king to give approval to what he's about to do in that region. Now, there are two men that are listed here, the Sanballat and Tobiah, and these men are not happy that Nehemiah is coming in to help the Jewish people. They saw it as a rivalry and a threat to them. So who are these two people? Well, Tobiah, the Ammonite, 
There is a long history of conflict with the Ammonites and the Jewish people all throughout the scriptures. And Tobiah is related by marriage to some of the people that are rebuilding the wall. And he had many friends that were among the Jewish people. And so he operated kind of covertly where he, his role was kind of like an intelligence officer. And he was gathering inside information with people that he knew in those families, the Jewish families. And he would pass that information along to Sanballat. And so this is a picture of uh, Sanballat and Nehemiah, who is more ripped than I thought he was. And, uh, and so Sanballat was, was Nehemiah's greatest adversary. And you'll see that all throughout the book. He tried numerous times to stop the Jews from rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. And not only that, but Sanballat was indirectly responsible for dividing the line of the Jewish high priest role. And this is a schism that would affect the Jews for centuries. I won't get into the details of that, but he, he caused that schism to happen that would affect the Jewish priesthood for centuries. This is the man that caused that. He was also the governor of Samaria. And if you recall back in Ezra chapter 4, I did a sermon on January 30th on Ezra 4 talking about this where there were some Samaritans that tried to help the Jews uh, rebuild the temple, but then Israel's leaders refused that help because even though the Samaritans claimed to worship Israel's God, they also mixed in pagan worship. And so if they had allowed these Samaritans to join them in in, in, uh, rebuilding the temple, that would have been a compromise to the worship of God. And so they refused that help, from the Samaritans, and this angered the Samaritans against the Jews, and now, almost a century later, that anger has solidified. And this is why Sanballat is such an enemy of the Jewish people. You're going to see his name again and again in the book, in Nehemiah chapter chapter 4 and also in chapter 6. At one point, he even hires an inside man to get Nehemiah to commit a sinful act so that Nehemiah would, would be banished by the Jewish people. Now, the Bible doesn't say what happened to Sanballat after the wall was finished, but there is good news. We have archaeological evidence that tells us some things about him. This is called the Elephantine Papyrus Number 30. In 1909, there were 175 documents that were found, and one of them contained 30 lines of Aramaic text, and one line here refers to the sons of Sanballat, governor of Samaria. Now, I I did interpret this, and that is correct. It does actually say that. Um, And uh, there have been other discoveries as well, uh, confirming this man's status as chief adversary to Nehemiah during that time. So here's why this is important. Because I think it shows the truthfulness of the scriptures. It's interesting how there's several things you'll see in this passage that line up with archaeological evidence pretty, in a pretty solid way. And what's also interesting is that even though Sanballat is causing a lot of grief for the Jews in the story, his actions leave a paper trail and serve as a help for us today, providing confirmation for stories just like this in the scriptures. And it shows that we can trust the scriptures and their accuracy And then if you look down at verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart 
to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that have been destroyed by fire. Now, Nehemiah doesn't want to cause further suspicion so, or further alarm. So what does he do? Well, he, he and a few men, they choose nighttime as the time to survey the walls. He doesn't tell anyone what he's going to do. He doesn't say what God has placed upon his heart. Now, it's obvious why he wouldn't tell his enemies, but why wouldn't he tell his close friends? Well, sometimes even your close friends can't keep a secret, right? And if he tells them now, they also might not be ready to hear it. If he just tells everyone what's going to happen or what God's called him to do, even the people that he wants to involve in this endeavor, they might not be ready to hear what he has to say. I think this shows great wisdom on Nehemiah's part as a leader because he wants to make sure that his plan is well-formed and thought through and that the plan has had time to grow in his own heart before he shares with other people. I think this stands in contrast to many of us today because sometimes we sense, if we sense God's call for us to go do something, what do we do? We start telling everybody. We just announce it. We proclaim it. We blast it on social media. Uh, you know, because once you say God's calling me to fill in the blank, well, who can argue with God's will? Well, once you've said that, once you've stated it, like who can argue with that? That's like the trump card. But sometimes it's good for us to wait. Sometimes it's good to let the vision, let whatever that thing is, that calling, formulate and, and grow inside our minds and hearts as God's leading us towards that and not share it just right away and let God do his work in the hearts of others and then wait to share it when the time is right. And that's what Nehemiah, I think, is doing here. He's showing discernment and discretion as a leader before he shares this call with them. What's interesting is that Nehemiah actually heard from God And he still chooses to wait. He still chooses to be quiet about it and just sit on it. And it says here that he only takes, he takes one animal because if there were a lot of animals walking around, that's going to be more noise, of course. And he's trying to go in secret. And so here's the path that he takes. Here's a map of Jerusalem. I tried to find one where you could read the words, but you probably can't read that there at the back. But this is a map of what it may have looked like at the time when he was surveying the city. And he surveys the southern section that you see here because Jerusalem was more vulnerable to the north. So there was, it's assumed there's more damage already to the north. And so he's trying to see what might still be left intact. And that might be the southern section of the city. So he starts at the valley gate over to the left, the bottom left, and goes east towards the dragon spring, the fountain gate, and the king's pool, probably located along the eastern side by the Kidron Valley. Now, the text mentions the dung gate. So what is that? Well, it's exactly what you think it is. And it, it wasn't just for that, but it was for, for all the city trash, and they would uh, put everything there and burn it there outside the city. It's about 500 yards from the valley gate, And notice it's as far as possible from the Temple Mount, and hopefully it's downwind, right? If I were teaching high school students, I would spend a lot more time talking about the Dung Gate in this sermon. 
but I'll spare you of that. Um, I want to give you a picture of what some of the, this looks like today. Here's a video of someone talking about the walls in Jerusalem, what this area, what it looks like today. Uh, in May, late May, uh, myself, my wife, Courtney, Danny, and Sandy Cunningham will be leading a trip to Israel with about 35 people from here from TBC. And so we're going to get to see all this in person. I have not seen this yet in person, but looking forward to seeing it. But here's a video about the walls modern day. the old city walls of Jerusalem here, very important site because when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, they sacked the city, destroyed the walls, brought them down to a pile of rubble, destroyed the temple, and uh, led away all the able-bodied people into what's known as exile. They were force-marched all the way around, down to Babylon, uh, far from home. There they sat down by the river, by the rivers of Babylon. You may have heard that song from a psalm that speaks about them weeping as they remembered Zion, the city of Jerusalem, now destroyed. Well, fast forward a few decades, and Nehemiah, one of the Israelites, one of the Hebrews, has been given a prominent position of power in Babylon. He hears that these walls are destroyed and he begins to weep. It says in the book of Nehemiah, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and I fasted and prayed. And he asked God to help restore the walls. And God basically said, why don't you be the answer to that prayer? To cut a long story short, Nehemiah says, the gracious hand of my God was upon me. He got incredible favor and resources, returned to Jerusalem and built up these walls. Many of these walls here, you can see, were built in the time of Nehemiah and then later periods of restoration as well. Behind me, you can just see the dung gate. One of the families said, we'll, we'll fix the dung gate. Uh, what heroes when you prepare to fix the dung gate? Everyone mucked in <laughs> and uh, together they rebuilt this, the walls of Jerusalem. Most builders uh, struggled to finish on time. Nehemiah and the builders of the wall had such favor, they finished in rapid time. And then along with Ezra, they worked to call God's people who'd been in exile back to the Torah. They celebrated the Passover. They recovered faithfulness to Yahweh here in the city of Jerusalem. Post-exile then, the walls were rebuilt, the temple was rebuilt, the nation was rebuilt. And they began to wait then for the promise of the Messiah who would come and bring ultimate restoration and hope. Nehemiah and the city of Jerusalem. So you get a view of what some of these gates may have looked like, and they're smaller than you might think they would be. But one observation stands out, I think, in that video, that Nehemiah is praying about the city and its walls, and God allows him to go back and be the answer to that prayer. So he says, go back and rebuild. I think it's a great challenge for us. What is something that you're burdened for? What is something that you feel called by God to do? What is God stirring within you? You know, maybe he is asking you to go and do something or to take action in some way and actually be the answer to the prayer or the burden that you're feeling and, and sensing. Maybe he wants you to be the one that acts with that. But as we're going to see, it's never wise for us to act alone. So look at uh, verse 14. Then I, went to the, then I went on to the fountain gate into the king's pool 
but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Again, he keeps the plan a secret, even from those who are going to help him. And so at this point, we're, we're not sure, he's not really sure who he can trust, so maybe he's keeping it, it, it a secret for that reason. Uh, you know, no one knows what he's there to do. And so I think, again, he's showing the qualities of a wise leader, a discerning leader. He's, he's holding back the information until the time is just right. And in verse 14, Nehemiah mentions an area in which there wasn't room for him to pass with his animal that he's riding on. This is believed to be a mound of rubble that was maybe caused by Nebuchadnezzar and his attack on the city from an earlier era. And this, is, this also is an area that was discovered by a British archaeologist, Kathleen Kenyon, in the early 60s. Once again, I think, showing that the scriptures can be trusted as we see how archaeological evidence lines up with what's in this story. And then in verse 17, then I said to them, wait a second, I'm sorry, I think I missed my slide here. Go back, can you go back to 17 on the screen back there? In verse 17, can we go to that? Let me click back here, there we go. I think you clicked it, then I clicked it. All right, verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. So now it's, it's no longer a secret, and he finally says it out loud. He finally communicates the plan to the people that um, he's with. And uh, so watch how he doesn't just lecture them about their ineptitude or complacency. We know that there was a remnant that was back there in Jerusalem, and there's a chance that, they, that they've grown complacent or apathetic, and, but, but Nehemiah doesn't come to them and lecture them about their, their uh, complacency, but he includes himself in it. And he says things like, we and us. This is just how he prayed back in chapter one. He prayed this prayer where he includes himself with the people as he's praying for them. Again, so a good leader identifies with the people that they're leading. You know, sometimes we're tempted to put ourselves above those that we lead or on a pedestal. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. A good leader doesn't do that. A good leader includes themselves with the people that they're leading. I think Nehemiah does that here. But even though he doesn't place himself above them, he still sees the problem clearly. He still identifies the issue. Derek Kidner, he writes, sometimes it takes a stranger to see sharply what has been softened by familiarity. So what does that mean? Well, the people in, in Jerusalem, they may have become complacent towards this destruction, toward this rubble. It may have been, you know, all this rubble, these, these broken down walls, that's just the way it is. That's how it's always been. Why change? It's fine. But then Nehemiah comes in with this new and fresh perspective from the outside. You know, sometimes we grow complacent to the debris that's around us, both physically and spiritually, or we're just we're too familiar with it, or we just accept it. But, but somebody comes in with, with some fresh eyes, some fresh vision, 
And they can quickly see what we should have seen all along. I think it can be true in our relationships, in the workplace, in organizations that we're leading. But it can also be true in our walks with Christ. Because whenever you and I surrender our lives to Christ, we receive the person of the Holy Spirit. He comes to indwell us and brings about conviction about sin. He points out the rubble, the debris. He shows where things are broken in our lives. You know, sometimes there are new believers that will say things like, you know, following Christ is just much more difficult than I thought it was going to be. I'm more aware of my brokenness than I ever was before. And I'm not sure I like that. I had a student a few months ago pull me aside and say, hey, can we talk? And we met um, one Sunday morning. He said, I just feel like as I'm growing in my faith, I feel like I'm growing, but I feel like I just see my brokenness more and more and more. And I said to him, I said, yes, that's going to happen when you're a believer. The Holy Spirit's going to point those things out in your life. But the good news is you get to lean further and further into the grace and mercy of Jesus. As you see that brokenness, you see your need more and more and more and more. And that's the good news. So when the Holy Spirit comes in and points that brokenness out in us, gives us that fresh perspective, gives us new eyes, new vision, this is good because this is the first step towards transformation and the transformation that God wants to bring about in our lives. Now, I want us to focus on a phrase in verse 17 where he says, come let us build that we may no longer suffer derision. So other ways of saying that, is so we may no longer be a disgrace or a reproach. We've got to be careful here because on the surface, it can look like he's doing this out of pride. You know, we're we're a laughing stock, so let's let's rebuild the city. We're worried about how we look to the people, so let's let's make sure we can't be a laughing stock anymore. But I think when you look at the broad scope of the book of Nehemiah, you're gonna see that it's it's God's name that he's most concerned about. God's name is at stake in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem has been turned into rubble, and I think today God's name is no longer at stake in a city with walls and gates, but his name is at stake in the lives of his people who are the new temple of the Holy Spirit. His, His name is at stake as it relates to us and how we relate to people around us, Now listen, I know whenever we're mocked or scorned by those around us, we are tempted to make it about us. It's a slight against our pride sometimes. But I think you've got to keep this principle in mind, that believers should care more about God's name and reputation than their own. If we're mocked by outsiders, which is going to happen, the scriptures tell us that's going to happen, let's make sure it's for the right reasons, for holding to truth, Because of the gospel, not because of sin or scandal or pride or arrogance. We've got to keep that in mind as we think about how we relate to those around us. And then over in verse 17, we see the response. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the work. So despite the brokenness in Jerusalem, Nehemiah couldn't help but see the hand of God on his own life and the life of the nation. So what is he doing here in verse 18? Well, he's sharing his testimony. 
He is testifying to what God has done in his life. That God's hand has been on his life. That God's hand has been on the nation. And he is sharing this powerful testament, this powerful word to the people about God's work in his life, and he wants it to be an encouragement to them. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, he has given you a story. He has given you a testimony that can be a source of encouragement for other people when they hear you share those words of what God has done in a powerful way in your own life. And if you're not yet a believer, a follower of Christ, he wants to give you a story like that. He desires to give you a story like that. A story of transformation that's going to encourage other people to come to know Christ and surrender their life to Christ. What's interesting about Nehemiah is that Nehemiah has the backing of God and also the king. And sometimes that happens, but sometimes it doesn't happen. We've got to be faithful in both contexts. How do we work when we don't have the backing of those in power? Nehemiah has the backing of God, has the backing of the king. Of course, he's encountering opposition where he's at in Jerusalem. But how do we do the work when we don't have the backing of those that are in power. And you can see here the people's reaction in verse 18. They seem excited to do the work. They seem to have caught the vision that he's trying to put before them. Someone uh, defined leadership this way. The art of getting people to do what they ought to do because they want to do it. Spoken by the, the famous Greek philosopher Anonymous. And uh, but it's the art of getting people to do what they ought to do because they want to do it. I think Nehemiah has led humbly in a way that people want to follow him. You see, leadership is not about position, but it's about influence. And Nehemiah uses that influence to lead these people towards God's mission. When you think about his job as a cupbearer, what does a cupbearer know about engineering? What does a cupbearer know about leadership? But what you see happen in the story is what God always seems to do throughout the scriptures is that he uses the least likely people in the least likely ways to accomplish his purposes. I can think of a lot of people with a better resume for building walls and for leading people. But this is who God chooses to do the work. And it's how he works throughout scriptures. It's how he works in our lives today as well. And then look down at verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So there it is again. There's the opposition. And Nehemiah has this confidence in God, and that confidence is infectious. You see, a godly leader isn't arrogant or, or prideful, but they're, they're confident. Confidence isn't arrogance. And that confidence is contagious, it flows down to the people. I think a great example of that right now in our world 
is what we're seeing with, with President Zelensky in Ukraine. I mean, what an inspiration that man is. When a leader is committed to principles and has resolve in the face of opposition, it has a way of flowing down to the people. It becomes contagious when a leader approaches something like this. I think we see that here in Nehemiah. You know, we forget, we forget how dangerous this endeavor would have been. When you think of the book of Nehemiah, you think of, it's just about building a wall, and that's, that's just kind of what the story's about. But it's so much more than that, because this is a, 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 a really dangerous endeavor for them. You know, I don't want to steal someone else's passage, but Nehemiah chapter 4 says that they had to work with a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other hand. This is a tense book. These people are encountering strong opposition throughout this book. And these are people that could have been paralyzed by fear. But Nehemiah, this godly leader that God raises up, inspires them to take action through his confidence in the God that he served. The words of Oswald Chambers, he says, the remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Nehemiah fears God, and he worships God. This is why he is unbending and unwavering even in the face of strong opposition. This past week, Brandon Brewer, our global outreach pastor, shared a story with me. I want to share it with you. It's about a man named John Gibson Patton. He was born in Scotland and raised there, and he becomes a believer, a follower of Christ, and he goes as a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands east of Australia. And only cannibals lived there on those islands. And others who had gone there to share the gospel had been killed. And when he was there, he had many close calls with death. And it was one night, one of the chiefs had become a Christian and became his informant and told him, hey, the men are going to come kill you tonight, but I, I want you to climb up this chestnut tree and stay in the tree all night while they're trying to find you to hide. And so you might think this ordeal of being up in this tree this night was something that he would never want to relive ever again. But here's what he writes about this experience in his autobiography. He writes this. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. And I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the men who wanted to kill me. Yet I sat there among the branches, as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. 
So it's in this moment, up in this tree, experiencing this great opposition coming against him where he sensed Christ's presence the most. Later on, he would develop the New Hebrides alphabet. He would translate that into the Bible so they could read it. By ministry's end, 25 of 30 islands had a mission house on the island. He went there in 1858, and there were no Christians, only cannibals. When he died in 1907, they were almost all Christians in that region. In the face of great opposition, he helped build God's kingdom. Because the people of God are supposed to be a people who build. We're built for that. And in an age where many people are deconstructing, you hear that word a lot, deconstruction or deconstructing the faith. And sometimes that can be a positive thing if someone is deconstructing false theology or or flawed ways of seeing God that's not biblical. Some deconstruction can can be a good and healthy thing. But sometimes people use that word or say they're deconstructing their faith to say, I don't have a faith anymore. Or I just see the whole thing as, as garbage. And so that is happening, I think, today in our culture. There's deconstructing the faith. There is uh, people tearing down the church or, or cowering in fear when there's opposition. But the people of God are people who build Now, again, it doesn't mean we're not honest about the rubble or the brokenness that we can find sometimes, but but tearing down is easy. Destruction is the easy work. Being the cynic or being the skeptic, that's the easy stuff. But building is the work. So are we the kind of people that God wants us to be as he's called us to build? Here's a few questions that Warren Wearsby asked in relation to this passage. Do we have a burden in our hearts for the work that God has called us to do? If you and I just venture off and just start doing the work and it's not coming from a passion that's been placed in our hearts, it's not going to last. It's not going to sustain. Are we willing to sacrifice to see his will accomplished? Anything that's worth doing is going to require us to sacrifice to see that come about. Do we motivate based on what God is doing or simply based on what we want and what our preferences are? Do we put our own hands to the work? Do we put our own hands to the work? Do we get our hands dirty? Put ourselves into the work. Put ourselves out there as we do that. And then lastly, are we cooperating in any way with the enemy and weakening the work? This last question I found very convicting as I thought about this. Is there any way in which I, any way in which you, are cooperating with the, with the enemy and weakening the work that God wants to do in us and through us? 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord... Your labor is not in vain. We're now going to enter a time of communion. And we do this for two reasons. 
Number one, because Jesus told his disciples to do this as an act of remembrance, but also as an act of proclaiming his death until he returns. So John chapter six, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. On the night that he was arrested, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples sharing a meal with them. And in the Gospel of Luke, we read, and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The scriptures tell us that the cup represents his blood that's been shed for us. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In Luke 22, it says, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do this remembering me. Father, we praise you, we thank you. And as we look at the story of Nehemiah, someone who was a cupbearer to the king, someone who stood in the gap between the king and possible death, that that's what you do for us. You stand in the gap for us. And God, you took the cup of God's wrath and you drank it on our behalf and in our place. God, we praise you for that. We thank you for offering us eternal life if we'll receive it. Offering us surrender if we'll, if we'll take it, if we'll receive it. And God, I pray that you'd help us to live from that place, that reality of your mercy and grace shown to us in the cross and through your blood and your broken body. We would allow that reality, that truth, to help us build your kingdom. We pray this in your name. Amen.